continue this morning to look at the seven words of Christ from the cross. Uh, I'm not going to review some of the things that I've mentioned in our first two uh, occasions to look at the seven words from the cross, but let me just mention to you again what they are. The first word of the cross, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second word from Luke 23, 43, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The third word from the cross, the one that we will be looking at this morning from John 19, verses 26 and 27, Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. The fourth one in Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fifth in John nineteen twenty eight, I thirst. The sixth word from the cross, John 19, verse 30, it is finished. And then the seventh word from the cross, Luke 23, 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now I would ask you to turn with me this morning to John's Gospel, chapter 19. John's Gospel, chapter 19, and I would begin... I would like to begin by reading verses 23 through 27. Our text for this morning will be verses 26 and 27. Let's read together beginning in John chapter 19 and verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each shoulder, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, it is extraordinary uh, in, this third world, in this third word from the cross that we see Jesus in the midst of his extreme suffering and trial continuing to focus, to focus his attention on the needs of others rather than himself. He is at a time when any ordinary person would be completely immersed in his own pain and suffering. And yet we see that he has prayed for his enemies and his persecutors in the first word from the cross. He has blessed the vile thief in the second word from the cross, and now he turns his attention to his close companions. Now, of the seven words from the cross uh, that were spoken, from, uh, spoken by our Lord, only two were spoken directly to individuals, and the circumstances of these two statements could not be more different. The first of these words that were spoken directly to an individual was the word that we have already considered, the word that was directed to the repentant thief. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
And now in our text this morning, Jesus speaks directly to his mother Mary and his disciple John with the words, Woman, behold your son, and then behold your mother. We saw last month that the thief was guilty of insurrection and murder and riot. He was one of a group of violent, notorious men, highway robbers, murderers, and political terrorists. This man was as far from the Lord Jesus Christ as anyone could possibly be until he encounters him there on the cross. His immediate need was spiritual, and it was a great and urgent need. His circumstances were desperate, but not beyond the saving power of just a few words from our Lord Jesus. From the cross, Jesus loved this man. In contrast to him, his mother Mary and his disciple John are his intimate friends, possibly closer to him than any other two people in this whole world. Their immediate need was very different from the thief on the cross. Their need was for comfort. And in the case of, of Mary, uh, her need was for her own personal care. According to our text, Jesus sees his mother and John standing near the cross. We see that in verse 26. Obviously, these are the things that our Lord has on his mind when he speaks. Behold your mother and behold your son. So from the cross, we see Jesus loving Mary and John. Now, I want us to consider the significance of these words from Christ this morning, and significant words they are, by looking at the three people that are involved. The first is Mary, the mother of Jesus. The second is John, who is actually writing this account here in John chapter 19, and who is the disciple of Jesus. And then the third is Jesus himself, who brings these two together with his words. So let's consider the circumstances of these three people, the first one being Mary. Mary's life was filled with many unique privileges and incredible things. Recall the words of Luke 1:42, "Blessed are you among women." But her unique privileges brought Mary to a place where she also was faced with many with much unique pain and sorrow and extraordinary suffering. The beginning of Mary's life with Jesus was so dramatic. There were angelic announcements, an impossible pregnancy, prophecy, miracles, a multitude of heavenly hosts that are praising uh, this birth of her son. Persian magician kingmakers, the magi, appear on the scene. Uh, just a short time later, probably about two years later. If there was anyone in this whole world that knew the miracle and the truth of this most unique man in human history, our Lord Jesus Christ, it was Mary. You will remember that even John the Baptist, when he was languishing in, pre in prison, had doubts and sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one who is to come? You can read about that in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. But Mary knows beyond all doubt that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. You will recall the circumstances surrounding his birth. In particular, let me draw your attention to Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. If you would turn there with me. Luke chapter 2, 
and verse 21. Begin reading in verse 21. And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, a name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for her purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now notice what it says in verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, that is, about the baby Jesus. Now you know how proud we are of our children. And I will add, and my grandchildren. And uh, can you imagine how Mary must feel at this point in her life? She has this son. She goes to the temple. And even there, there's a prophetic word coming from God concerning how great uh, this one will be, the things that he will be. We can just imagine how it is for Mary, overwhelmed and awestruck to hear such things. Now, Simeon then prophesies again concerning Jesus and his mother. We read on in verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, we have this word that comes directly to Mary this prophetic word from Simeon, and it is these words, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And when the rest of Luke chapter 2, there's a brief account of his childhood. Let me draw your attention to the last words of verse 51, where it says, And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Mary's soul would be pierced through many times. In their hometown of Nazareth, where they lived, she saw Jesus rejected and the object of such hatred that they tried to seize him and throw him over the side of a cliff. We can read about that in Luke chapter 4. His own brothers came to despise him, and they go so far as to say, He is out of his mind, Mark 3, 21. Others were saying that he has an unclean spirit, meaning that they were accusing him of being possessed by a demon, Luke 3.30. She would witness all the religious leaders in Israel overcome with hatred for him and plotting his capture and his death. 
But now her heart will be pierced most sharply and most deeply as she witnesses this horrible scene of her beaten and mutilated son hanging on a cross, a place of agony and disgrace, a cursed place. Some consider this scene that is before us here to be the most heart-wrenching scene in all of the gospel records. What could be more pitiful than a mother watching such a scene as this, as uh, this horrible thing happens to her son? There is her son suspended between earth and heaven on a Roman cross. Is this what was supposed to happen uh, to this great son that started uh, with all the things that happened in the early days of her life together with Jesus? We must remember that Mary is just an ordinary woman. She's not a superwoman. When she sings in Luke chapter 1, she sings about God being her Savior and, and the fact that she herself is a sinner. A.W. Pink, writing on the seven sayings of the cross, says this about Mary in this scene. I'm quoting now. Who can measure those hours of sorrow and suffering as the sword was slowly drawn through Mary's soul? Hers was no hysterical or demonstrative sorrow, no feigning. Not a word that fell from her lips has been recorded by either of the four evangelists. Apparently, she suffered in unbroken silence. Yet her sorrow was nonetheless real and acute. The crowds are mocking. The thieves are taunting. The priests are jeering. The soldiers are callous and indifferent. The Savior is bleeding, dying. And there is his mother beholding the horrible mockery. What wonder if she had swooned at such a sight? What wonder if she had turned away from such a spectacle what wonder if she had fled from such a scene but no there she is she does not crouch away she does not faint she does not even sink to the ground in her grief she stands there by the cross let me give you just a brief side note our text says uh, in verse 25 that she is standing by the cross of Jesus where his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, there's often debate about how many women were there at the cross and about how many Marys that there actually are and exactly who they are. And so if you're interested in this kind of thing, let me just very briefly uh, make this statement about uh, our, our verse that talks about these women that are with Mary at the cross. Though we cannot know with absolute certainty, I would suggest to you that there are four and not three women mentioned here in this verse. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary, the wife of Clopas, is called by both Matthew and Mark, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and twice by Matthew, the other Mary. According to tradition, Clopas is the brother of Joseph, the father of Jesus, in which case this Mary is the sister-in-law of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so this first woman here with Mary uh, is her sister-in-law. Mary's sister is called by Matthew the mother of the sons of Zebedee. That means she is the mother of James and John, who is writing 
these words in John chapter 19. In Mark's gospel, she is called by her name Salome. This means that Salome is Mary's sister and John's mother. Thus, the apostle John is the first cousin of Jesus. And here at the cross are Jesus with his mother Mary and John with his, Mary, his mother Salome, who is Mary's sister. And accompanying them is his sister-in-law, Mary, the wife of Clopas. And of course, there is also Mary Magdalene, and we all know who she is. Now we're going to see these three women again in Mark chapter 16, verse 1. It is Mary Magdalene. It is Mary, the sister-in-law. And it is Salome, the sister, that are the ones that take spices to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. This is going to happen just a little more than a day later. Now, Mary's needs are very real. There is every reason to believe that Mary is a widow. There is no mention of Joseph in the Gospels during the time of the public ministry of Jesus. Jesus is the oldest son, and he has particular responsibilities concerning her upkeep and her well-being. What will happen to her now with the death of Jesus? Now, these are the circumstances concerning Mary when Jesus speaks to her. Now, what about John? When Jesus sees his mother, he also sees John standing there. John is not just one of Jesus' disciples. He is one of the inner circle that is especially close to him, the others being James and Peter. These three appear to have enjoyed a special confidence and a special place in the life of Jesus. When Jesus raises the daughter of Jairus from the dead, Luke tells us, quote, He allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James. At the transfiguration of Jesus, these three are there. They see the glory of Jesus revealed, and when Moses and Elijah appear, John is there. But the question needs to be asked, where has John been since chapter 18? When we last hear of John, he is with Peter. He is the other disciple of John 18, verses 15 and 16. Uh, in that passage, the other disciple is clearly John. And it is these two, Peter and John, that enter into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, we know what happens to Peter. We know that he denies him. That story is told in each of the gospel records. But what happens to John? Well, the answer to what happens to John is found in Matthew twenty-six fifty-six, where we read these words. Then all the disciples left him and fled. It is not just Peter who denied him. It is not just Judas who betrayed him. It was all of them. Now, can you imagine what it must have done to our Lord? Can you imagine what it must have added to his suffering to see, his, to see all of his disciples to a man forsake him and run? Even the intimate three, the special ones, Peter, John, and James are gone. And now we're at the cross, and there is just one of the eleven. The grace of God that will work in such a powerful way to restore Peter in just a few days is, is already at work in John. 
He is there with the mother of Jesus and with his own mother. Something has overcome his fear, and John refers to himself in our text as, quote, the disciple whom he loved. Now, why does John call himself that? Why does he call himself the disciple whom he loved? I don't think that he is trying to say that Jesus loved him more than he loved anyone else. I think that John could never get over the fact that the Christ of God could love him personally and really. John, this one who is called the Son of Thunder, not to be taken as a compliment, I assure you. Years later, when John is an old man, writing his first epistle, our book of 1 John, this is what he says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us. He marvels at the love of God towards sinners in Christ. And when he returns to Jesus' side here at the cross, there is one thing that John knows. He may not know how much he loves Jesus, but he knows that Jesus loves him and that it is that love that has brought Jesus to this awful place. Of all the disciples, only John is here. Let me ask you, did you, do you ever wonder at the love of God for sinners? Do you wonder at the love of God for you? May I suggest that it is one of the most Christian things that we ever do when we look at the deep, dark places in our heart, the places that only Christ can see, and we wonder how could the Christ of God love someone like me. That was the heart of John the beloved disciple. Now put yourself in John's shoes for a moment, standing there at the cross. Here is Jesus hanging at a cross, on the cross. He looks at John. What do you think John is thinking? Is he filled with guilt and disappointment at himself for what he has done in abandoning Christ? Do you think he was humiliated when Christ looks right at him? Was he expecting a rebuke? from Christ, from Jesus, for his cowardice and his desertion. These are the circumstances of John as he stands there and as Jesus speaks to him. Now let's consider Jesus for a moment. It is truly remarkable that Jesus does not focus on his own broken body of pain, but that he focuses his attention on his mother's broken heart and her needs. Note that his love for her in this moment is deep, and it is deeply practical. There are a number of lessons that we can learn in these words. These actual words are brief. Woman, behold your son. Then he says to the disciple John, behold your mother. His concern at this moment is not so much to comfort her. He is not trying to explain the great mysteries that are being fulfilled in this cross event. He is not directing his words to her eternal needs and to the world to come. His concern is to make practical arrangements for her care and well-being after he is gone. It's a, marvel, a marvelous example of keeping the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Now listen to this carefully. Our Lord Jesus Christ is bringing in these hours on the cross 
all of his work and all of his preparation to a climax. The basis for his saving work is his obedience to all of the law of God. The scriptures are clear, Romans 5, 19. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. During his youth, he obeyed. Luke 2.51 tells us, and, and when he went down with them and came to, to Nazareth, he was submissive to them. He obeyed his mother and his father. Now, I often think about that, and, you know, it is the curse of children to always think that they know better than their parents. But you know what? In the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, he did know better than his parents. And yet, what does he do? He submits himself to them in obedience to the command of God. And so it was throughout his life. He was fulfilling the will of God and obeying the commandments of God. It was just as important for Jesus to fulfill his responsibilities to his mother as it was for Jesus to obey any other word from God. His care for his mother in his dying moments is part of of his saving work for you and for me. These brief words are directed at the needs of John as well. The need to be encouraged that there is forgiveness and restoration even when sin is great. The need to know that there is acceptance and usefulness even after failure. Jesus is expressing the greatest confidence in John by giving him this responsibility. Jesus is saying both to Mary and John, that John is to be to her what Jesus would be if he continued to be there. But Jesus is not going to be there to take care of his mother. John is to be a beloved son, Mary to be a beloved mother. Note the words at the end of verse 27. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And so John immediately takes up uh, this responsibility of caring for Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me bring to your attention some lessons and some observations from this, these, uh, this third word from the cross. First observation is this. Jesus is concerned with our temporal needs. Now, there on the cross, Jesus is in the act of making provision for his mother's greatest need. That is, the need for atonement for sin. But even, when, but, but even then, he is conscious of her material and her physical needs. Romans 8.32 says, he, did not, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? all lesser things, including our material needs. We should never think that our Lord is indifferent concerning our well-being, our health, our everyday life in this world. It is a matter of His constant concern. And even here in the midst of His suffering on the cross, He's concerned about these very things in relationship to His mother and to John. Another lesson we learn is this. We learn that circumstances never give us leave from our God-given responsibilities. The Lord Jesus is concerned about his responsibilities in this most trying, in these most trying of circumstances. One inescapable 
inescapable conclusion from this word from the cross is that family responsibilities are important. In 1 Timothy 5.8, we read this. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. As followers of Christ, we must take these things seriously. And by the grace of God, we do, and we will. We should draw encouragement from the example of John. How discouraged and defeated would you be, and how discouraged and defeated would I be, if our sins and our failures were the end of the story? The gospel and the grace of God enables us to overcome sin and failure. There John stands near the cross. It has only been a matter of hours since his complete abandonment of Jesus. What will Jesus do and what will he say? Well, let me make two observations about what happens now. First, John's actions had absolutely no effect on the love of Christ for him. Dear ones, if you're a Christian, and you maybe have heard me say this before, let me say it again. Reaching back before this world began, Jesus has always loved you. He loves you now. He will always love you. And nothing will ever change that. In John chapter 13, verse 23, the disciple whom Jesus loved is reclining at the table at Jesus' side. He's in close fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Now in John 19, 26, after all that has happened in the intervening hours, John is still the disciple whom he loves. Nothing has changed. And nothing changes about the love of Christ and his commitment to me or to you when we sin. Now secondly, note that John is exactly where he needs to be in order to be forgiven and restored. He has gone to Jesus at the cross. How do we overcome sin and failure? Where do we find forgiveness and restoration? Where do we go to receive direction and instruction? I suggest that we should do exactly what John is doing here. We go to where Christ is there at the cross. We must go to the cross for these things. Now let me give you one final and very important lesson. We see this from the way that Jesus deal, deals with his mother and with John. And we also see this from words that Jesus has spoken on two earlier occasions. I hope that what I'm about to say will make you love and appreciate the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Note that Jesus commits the care of this one whom he loves to a faithful disciple. He commits her care to another Christian and not to her own family. It is to John and not to his brothers and her sons that he looks to for the care of his mother. We know that some and maybe all of his brothers will become faithful men in the future. Following his resurrection, we see them meeting with the disciples, but they are not there yet. And so he entrusts his mother's care to John. Jesus is committed to meet both her, her spiritual and her physical needs, and that can be best done by, by another believer. 
When do we see Mary next? We see her next in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. And where, what is she doing? She is there with the church of Jesus Christ. She is there devoting herself to prayer along with the disciples and the other women followers of Jesus. And we read for the first time the words, and his brothers, indicating that those who rejected him have now begun to follow him. I know that you've heard the words, blood is thicker than water. And sometimes uh, that is true. But it is not the case in Christ's church. Earthly relationships are temporary. Spiritual relationships are eternal. Spiritual relationships are the more significant ones. In fact, Jesus is going to say in Matthew 10... Verses 35 and 37, this. He says, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It is often our brothers and sisters in Christ that are the closest to us and the ones that are best able to help us in our time of need, especially when our needs are spiritual and moral and ethical in nature. There is a higher relationship than the relationship of flesh and blood. Even for Mary, her most significant relationship to Jesus is not the relationship of mother to child. It is that of woman to Savior. There is more to this story. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus has been teaching. And in verses 28 and 29, we read these words. And he said these things. As he said these things, that is, he was teaching them. A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the, and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus says that if by the grace of God we've been enabled to hear and to obey, it is more blessed than the blessing of being his actual flesh and blood mother. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And look with me at beginning at verse 46. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is, my, he, who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards, towards his disciple, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Your mother and your brothers are here. 
what does Christ say? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? The answer to that question is he points to his disciples there that are there, those that believe in him and those that are following him. And he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Here are the people who have the most significant and the most permanent relationships with me. Other relationships are temporary and fleeting. We will be mother and brother and sister of Christ forever. And by extension, we will be family, not with our flesh and blood family, but with our Christian family forever. Then he describes those that belong to him in this way. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I can look around this room and see people that believe in Jesus and that follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I can say to each and every Christian person here, you are the disciple that Jesus loved. Look around this room at other Christians here. And as you look at every one of them, say to yourself, Behold your son and behold your mother. That is what Christ says to us. Jesus Christ has brought us together in his kind providence. We are standing near the cross and he has committed the care of each of us to one another. We may have a close family. We may have a Christian family. I praise God if you do. But whether you do or not, if we live together as we ought to do as the followers of Jesus Christ, this family, our church family, our Christian family, is where Jesus will take care of us, body and soul. That is what he did with Mary and with John in their time of need. That is what he continues to do with us. And we have this promise from the Lord. Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. How do we have a hundred brothers and a hundred sisters and a hundred mothers and a hundred fathers, a hundredfold? We have them in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does this third word from the cross have to do with the Lord's table that we're about to approach in just a moment. We often call it communion. It is here that we gather with our brothers and sisters and our mothers and fathers in Christ, and together we remember the Lord's death. It is because of this bread and cup that we are bound together, and every time we celebrate the Lord, we celebrate His body, the church, our family. May God bless us as we come to the table this morning uh, to do exactly that. To appreciate Christ, but to appreciate also the care and comfort that we receive from God's people as we enter this extraordinary family.
I want to ask now, I don't know, see that Pastor Justin is in sight, so we will uh, move into our communion service without him. Let me ask the men that are going to serve to come forward.